Good morning. Good morning, Veritas. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be starting a pretty cool new series starting this morning. I'm really glad you guys are here. And I was thinking as, as James was praying just beautifully, you know, we, we just got done singing worthy, 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 and, and I'm listening to all of you, you know, sing that over and over, worthy is the Lord. And then all of a sudden you, you maybe look in a mirror or whatever, and you realize, man, he is so exalted, so high, so infinite. And like in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would even care for him? Like the gap, the chasm is so great. How is it that you even care about me? How is it that I'm even woven into your story, God? But, but that's actually what we're going to be doing. Um, we're going to go through uh, first this fall, the book of Genesis, and then we're going to complete that, kind of this flyover of Genesis, and we're going to end in the spring semester going through the book of Revelation, which I think is going to be Pretty sweet to get the bookends of a whole Bible in one uh, academic year. One thing I want to mention about that, um, if you're interested, we have these um, scripture notebooks for the book of Genesis for the fall study available. Again, you've seen these before. We've, we've had them before, but now this one's for Genesis. A little bit bigger, a lot more pages in Genesis. But it's pretty cool. You can see the way it's laid out, you know, where you've got the text on one side and just place for notes on the other. So if you're interested, the, the publisher gave us a great deal, five bucks. So five bucks would get you uh, one of these if that would help you as we journey through uh, the book of Genesis together. Pretty, pretty excited to do that. Um, the Bible is just... A marvelous book. I can't wait for us to dig into those opening pages. Um, I don't know how many of you guys are into detective stories. You guys into detective? If it's not reading them, maybe watching detective shows or detective movies, Sherlock Holmes, that kind of thing. Can I get some nods? A few people into it? Okay, yeah, a lot of it. Probably Sherlock Holmes is, is the most famous of those. Maybe even is a, you know started the whole kind of genre out. I mean, almost 150 years later, we're still reading Sherlock Holmes. They're still making movies off based on Sherlock Holmes, right? For me, I mean, I dig Sherlock Holmes for sure, but lately I've been reading the Father Brown mysteries. Anybody familiar with those at all? Pretty sweet. They're short little stories. G.K. Chesterton started writing them. Anyway, whether it's Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown, whatever, it's fascinating when you get to the end of one of those stories, and then you're like, oh, man, how did he figure that out? And so you want to go back and read like all the little clues that seemed, even as the reader, even as the author is dropping the clues in place, you're kind of lost until all of a sudden at the end, they, oh, they all line up. So you want to go back and kind of figure it out. You know? And sometimes in the Sherlock Holmes movies, at least they'll do that. They'll go back and show you, see, you should have been seeing it the whole time, right? It's just that fun. Well, here's what I'm saying. The Bible... I hope for you guys will be fascinating in that same kind of way. Once the storyline is set, and then once you get to the end and see how it's all concluded, man, I hope that you can't wait to explore all the stuff in between, all the little clue trails that, that led you from that beginning to that epic ending. Um, and, and here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to say this right off. You will spend the rest of your life exploring the in-between, right? This is going to help you to understand the in-between pages for sure. But you're going to spend the rest of your life. It's not like, oh, now I know how it ends. Done. Got it. No, it's once you get the whole picture, all the little bits in-between become even more fascinating and more 
alluring. So here's what the Bible does too, is uh, follows this pattern of great storytelling. Actually, I said that wrong because the Bible doesn't follow the pattern at all. (laughs) The Bible sets up the pattern. It's like the capital S storyline and all other epic great stories follow this this story arc that the Bible sets up. So in other words, a great story starts off with everything as it should be. Everything's peaceful. Everything's flourishing. Opening pages of Genesis, you've got Eden, right? Everything's shalom. Everything's exactly as it ought to be. But in every great thriller kind of a story, something cataclysmic happens. There's some dramatic turn that kind of takes everything as it should be and just boom, everything's falling apart, right? So you get to Genesis 3, you get the fall and everything, just Eden kind of crumbles, kind of falls apart. That follows that same trajectory of storyline. But then you get that pivotal moment. Every great story has a pivotal moment where there's hope is born, right? And, and you're not sure exactly how it's going to turn out, but oh, there's a twist. For us, of course, we know Jesus steps on the scene and, and like every great story, never saw that coming. Like even the, we're going to look at a passage here in just a moment. Even those who had been part of the story didn't see that kind of twist. Nobody was looking for the Jesus that actually appeared. And so, but there he is, and it's marvelous in our eyes how the, you know, things will never be the same. And of course, that ends to then a a level of resolution at some point. Every great story has some level of, it's all resolved. Things are go go back to the way they, they ought to be, right? Well, in the Bible, what we find out is, oh, it's way better than that. It doesn't just go back to the way things ought to be. It's better than. And in fact, not only is the storyline completed and resolved and better than, we get pulled. It's almost like the reader all of a sudden gets pulled into the book itself, and we get to experience the unbelievable culmination of all things. So I I hope that what you're going to see is that whole deal. You know, like in, in regular stories, really fun, epic stories, things only get resolved until the sequel comes out and another bad guy appears, right? <laughs> or whatever. No, in the, in the capital S story, the big story of the Bible, when things get resolved, they get resolved for eternity and we're safe and we're secure and flourishing forever and ever, right? If you've got a Bible, I want you to go with me uh, to the book of First Peter because what I want you to see is something... <laughs> pretty spectacular. And that is that as the Bible is, is unfolding over the years and with different authors, um, the individual storytellers that contribute to the storyline along the way, they don't even grasp the whole unfolding story themselves. In fact, you actually understand more of the overall story than any individual author along the way. Now, that's pretty mind-blowing and, and all that, but that's exactly what Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. You guys, I, I hope this already just piques your interest in this storyline. 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation, for the first nine verses, he's been just talking about the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's talking about. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ 
and the glories that would follow. It, it was revealed to them that they actually weren't serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse into these things. Guys, understand what Peter's saying. He's saying that the biblical authors, I mean Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, whatever, were fascinated by those who had gone before them. And in fact, even as they're writing their next portion of the thing, would all of a sudden be like, oh, wait, that reminds me of what Daniel said. Holy cow, that's what Moses said. They got so fascinated that, look at what Peter's saying, they would start delving more into their own writings as well as the other writings because they realized something bigger is going on. I feel like I'm completing my thought. Oh no, this, somebody else is actually going to see the full package of everything going on. So uh, my friend Eric sent me this uh, really cool image. I want to show you this. Okay, I don't know if some of you have, have seen this before. This is a visual that uh, a guy did several years ago now. Let me explain what this is. These little gray and whitish lines on the bottom represent every chapter in the Bible. So from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22. Every time one of those chapters makes an allusion or a reference back to another portion of the Bible, it draws an arc back to it. So this displays how many thousands of times one person, one writer in the Bible makes reference back. And so obviously the greater the arc, the further back that they're going, right? So if you go to, uh, I think it's Viz Bible or whatever, what you can actually do is, is roll you know, your cursor over any individual line and it will show you the two passages. Or you can go underneath and go to one chapter and it will tell you where it refers to. It's amazing, is it right? But look at that visual. That's how often the Bible is making reference back to itself, demonstrating what First Peter is saying is these authors realize, oh, somebody else is going to get the full picture. Man, I'm, I'm blown away with what I've got, but this is leading to something far greater. Man, what did Isaiah say? Wait, what, how, how does that fit with what Moses was saying? You know, and they were fascinated with their own writings. And it's, it's just, but here's, here's the crazy thing. The story that mystified Moses, the story that mystified Daniel and Isaiah and all the rest, has now been explained to you and me, right? The idea that you actually have access to the full story, you know more about the completed story. Look, even Peter and Paul, like we're reading here, Peter, even they died before John finished the book of Revelation, even they didn't get to see the culmination, but you get it all. Like, what a privileged place we find ourselves that we get the entire story, he's saying, all delivered for you. It was all for you. When you look back at 1 Peter 1, like, verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that would come to you. It wasn't actually the, the full story. It wasn't even going to come to them in verse 12. It was revealed to them. They weren't serving themselves. You, you're the one that's been you know, the gospel's been announced to you, and it's amazing. It's like, you guys, that you have read the entire Father Brown mystery, right? And you actually know more than the characters who are playing out the story in the story. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? You got more access, more knowledge of the story than even the people that were involved in the story. And I love that last verse in, in, in 1 Peter 1.12. Even angels longed a glimpse into this stuff. Even the angels were blown away, right? Even they didn't know how it was all going to unfold. They're watching it in real time, which is why I think even like at the advent, at the birth of Christ, the angels somehow all of a sudden burst onto the scene and start singing because they're like, no way. He's coming as a baby. Did you guys see Gabriel? Come here. You know, like, I think they're all just blown away and fascinated because they didn't know how it was all going to come out. How would you have liked to have been one of the angels at the empty tomb? I knew it. I knew he couldn't stay dead forever. You know what I mean? They didn't know. They're all watching it happen. And now here we are. We've got the whole thing laid out before us. It's an unbelievable privilege we have. And I, and I hope that we are caught up in that privileged place we have to go back. And now that we've got, gotten the whole thing, got the, the whole storyline there, to go back and see how it all connects and just grow in our glory and wonder the whole thing. So here's what I want to do. I just want to whet your appetite this morning. Next week, we'll actually start in our journey through Genesis, but I just want to show you how the bookends of the story, some of these story arcs come together and just maybe create a little bit of a hunger in you. So um, if you've got a Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to flip back and forth, Genesis and Revelation, okay? So I want the very beginning pages and the very end pages. So Genesis 1, the very first theme or clue trail that we're given is, is pretty self-evident, just creation itself. Genesis 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Like, that's the opening line. Just know, God could have written his book to mankind with anything. Start, start with the rules. Hey, before we get going, here's the rules. Here's how you got to follow. No. Could have been, hey, here's how to worship. I'm going to start with the Psalms. No, it starts with the story of creation. He wants us to know first and foremost, right out of the gates, that he has created all things. You go all the way back to the book of Revelation and go to Revelation 21, the very ending, right? When you read the last chapters, chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first, earth, uh, first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Verse 5 of Revelation 21, then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. So even this theme of creation, don't miss that. There's a creation, everything falls apart, but he's going to renew, restore, actually recreate, and it's going to be better than ever. It's a theme of creation. And this is why I won't have this on the screens as much, but this is where then you, you know, the prominence and preeminence of Jesus Christ really comes through. Because like when you read the opening uh, verses of John, for instance, when Jesus steps on the scene, let me just read this for you real quick, John 1 in the beginning, okay, John was obviously trying to catch the reader's attention. Oh, that's how Genesis starts, right? In introducing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. So I'm just saying that the, the one who will hold those bookends together, the Genesis Revelation storyline together, is going to be Jesus Christ. We are going to be pointed to Jesus Christ over and over and over. In fact, when we get to the book of Revelation, you guys, every week you come, the gospel is just going to be proclaimed to you over and over and over because he's the one that's holding this whole thing together. He is that creator. Okay, so creation. Go back to Genesis. This time go to chapter 2. Just now, we're, now we're almost going to zero in all of creation. Now we're going to zero in just on rivers. <laughs> okay, so in Genesis 2.10, it says... 
A river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. And it describes all the flourishing and all the unbelievable treasures that that were found in these rivers. Rivers have been, for all ages, um, central to life. Um, We need water to exist, even more than food. We need water to exist, to, to go from one place to another. It was always channels of water. Rivers became unbelievable uh, central to, to existence. But when you go to Revelation 22, yeah, go to Revelation 22, uh, the first couple of verses, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. Now that river becomes so prominent, it's right in the center of the city. Like everything kind of revolves around this river that was introduced in Genesis, now reintroduced to us, but more glorious, right? Think again just about Jesus Christ, right? The woman at the well. Oh man, I could provide for you water that will never run out, just flowing water. Get to John 7 where Jesus stands up at the feast, and he says, oh, just, I want to invite you, come to the rivers of living water, you will never thirst again. So this whole idea of rivers is actually a theme that's going to connect Genesis to Revelation, even Jesus himself, uh, yeah, just fascinating. Okay, let's go back to Genesis real quick. Uh, Creation, rivers, now I'm going to go to one very particular thing, the tree of life, Genesis 2, verse 9, Genesis 2, 9 The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. So there's scores, who knows, just, you know, horizon to horizon of gorgeous trees that smell great and look great and the the food is good, including the tree of life in the middle of a garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that tree of life is in the center. It's like everything else kind of revolves around that tree of life. Well, you know, you know the story in Genesis 3, we're going to get there in a few weeks where after the fall, after the cataclysmic fall of everything and, and everything's back into chaos, mankind is actually barred from the tree of life, sent out from the, I don't want you to touch the tree of, the tree of life, but you go to the book of Revelation, okay, and you go to, again, chapter 22, verse 2, down the middle of the street, there's that river, and then the tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer any curse, right? I I just love that whole imagery of the tree of life. Not only are we not barred from it, like in in Genesis 3, we're invited to it, invited to it so much that it keeps reproducing different kinds of fruit. Like, can you imagine a tree that every month you go to it, it's got a different kinds of, of fruit, you know? Man, those apples were sweet. And then you turn around, you come back the next month, you're like, that's a pear tree? I thought for sure. Didn't I just get apples? You go back, you know, oranges? What is going on? But, but it's like keeps inviting you back. Not only are you not barred, it keeps inviting you back. Because what's next? What's next? What's next? Right? The tree of life just lavishly, just, just flourishing, producing for us all this stuff. Tying it back into the story of Jesus, you guys. Um, how did Jesus die? What was the means of his death? Hung on a, a tree, a cross, right? Wait, the means of torture and death actually we think of now as a tree of life? Like it's just marvelous when you start thinking of 
fact, the Bible Project has one whole, I don't know if you guys like their, their storylines, or but they have one whole series just on the trees of the Bible that's really awesome. And they talk about that significance of Jesus hanging on a, a tree, right, a, a, a cross, but now becomes, becomes a symbol of life for us. Okay, this is the one I just want to land on and that will we'll kind of land the plane on. One, one last theme or clue trail, and that's the sacrifice for sin. So I want you to go back to Genesis with me, and, and we're going to go to chapter 3 this time, because in Genesis 3, uh, as we've talked about, that's where the fall, that's where the cataclysmic turn, dark turn happens. But what happens is, after mankind has already sinned, when you go to chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, that verse maybe wouldn't catch your attention in the grand sweep of that whole narrative very much, but as the Bible continues to unfold, you realize, oh, that was a very significant moment. Guys, mankind had never seen death before. It's never seen a, a, a spilling of blood. And Adam and Eve were, had to realize in that moment, oh, I sinned, therefore this innocent animal had to die? All that blood on the ground? Now I'm covered, I'm wrapped, I'm protected by the innocent animal that died on my behalf. I don't deserve, that animal didn't deserve that, and I don't deserve to have that kind of sacrifice, right? So that whole theme of sacrifice was introduced to them right off. Now, just by a hint, just a shadow of that greater truth is, is cast over them, right? And, and by the way, we're going to see that over and over through the book of Genesis, um, especially maybe in Genesis 22 with Abraham and his son, and instead of sacrificing his son, there's a lamb in the bush, right? We're going to see this. We're going to bump up against it, especially as you go throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, right? The unbelievable story of, of the, the sacrifice for us. All we like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that theme of a sacrifice on our behalf will just be so bold throughout the whole of Scripture. But Revelation Chapter 5, guys, when you get to the, oh man, the book of Revelation, this theme is so bold. I mean, chapter after chapter, but I grabbed the one out of chapter 5. Revelation 5 says this. By the way, I just want to set it up, because in chapter 4, here's the way Revelation 4 starts. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard was speaking to me like a trumpet and said, come here, I'll show you what must take place after this. He's like, oh, sweet. In chapter four, he's like, oh, you're going to tell me how everything goes? Okay. So that's what you're waiting for. You get to chapter five. I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. So here's the story. This is the story of everything that's going to happen, right? So he's like, oh, okay, there it is. I'm going to have access to the storyline. It says, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy? No one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look at it. I wept and wept. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, oh, do not weep. Look, The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he's able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. So you're like, sweet, a a valiant, courageous king. He's got a sword in his hand, right? This, This lion of Judah, King David, right? That's the one. He's gonna come up and with his, you know, ripped muscles, he's gonna 
rip those, you know, seals off, right? That's, oh, that's what we needed. We needed that conqueror to come in and have enough strength to get to those seals, right? And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. Because just the breathtaking contrast here. Look, there's the conquering lion of Judah. And when I turned to see what they were fixing my gaze on, oh wait, there's one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders who had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God and all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand and the one seated on the throne. And the whole rest of Revelation 5 is, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. In fact, we're going to get to sing that song from Revelation 5 uh, when I'm finally done here, right? We're going to get to sing that song, worthy is the lamb, right? He's the one that's going to finish the story. We're going to have access to the whole rest of the story because Jesus, but he's not just this conquering king. He is that. But when we glance at him, we notice, oh, you can still tell he's a slaughtered lamb. Guys, that whole thing, I just need you to know, that's what First Peter is marveling at. That's what Peter is saying. Wait a minute. A, a lamb that would die? Like suffering? Death? How does that fit into this unfolding heroic story? It, it, it was blowing my mind. Is suffering so central to the biblical story and to you and me if we're going to play a role in that story that even the very hero of the story is for eternity marked by his sufferings? Right? That's true, right? When you get to heaven, you see him face to face. Yes, you will see his glorious face and you will forever see nail marks. Memories, scars of true suffering. Is suffering really so much of the storyline that we're going to see it from beginning to end and forever and ever and ever? Yes. You guys, I had just such a fascinating conversation this week. Um, I was at the gym, and one of the uh, gals there is actually, she's uh, at the Iowa Writers Workshop. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Iowa Writers Workshop. You should be. It's unbelievable, prestigious. Pe writers from all over the world would love to study at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Well, she, she's, one of, she's one of the writers. So as I had gotten to know her, and I said, man, I would love to see some of your stories. Could I, could I read some of your stories? And she's like, yeah. So she, so she sent me some of her short stories that had been published. And I mean, these guys are published all over the place, right? So I read them, and then this last week we're talking, I said, man, if I could be so bold, I said, I mean, you know I'm a pastor, and, and you're a writer. Well, I said, as I read your stories, there is such brokenness. You wrote about such suffering. I said, normally when people can tap into that and, and really evoke that in the reader, it's because they've actually suffered themselves. Have you had some real brokenness and suffering in your life? Like, yeah, so it, 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 we had this awesome, I'm getting a little choked up, awesome conversation from there. Here's what I'm saying, guys. The reason that her stories are published and read 
by so many is because we read that stuff and we're like, totally, that's real. That's my life. I understand suffering. I understand brokenness because that's in my life, right? I, you guys, here's what I'm saying. If the Bible did not speak boldly to suffering and pain, we would know that this book was a fake, right? We would know that this book doesn't actually mean anything because it would miss a central part of the human experience, which is real suffering and real loss and real pain and real fear. But, but God's story, the real story, the Bible, doesn't soften or explain away suffering. It forces us to face it head on and to reckon with it and to find some kind of meaning behind it. So the Bible not only is not going to varnish it over or, or, or try to distract you from it, it's going to push suffering and pain right into our faces. Even the hero would suffer violently before becoming gloriously, you know, our king and to reign forever and ever, right? First Peter 1.11. Guys, do you, know what, do you know what atheistic philosophers and really smart people think about the storyline, that theme in the Bible? It's a mockery to them. Probably one of the clearest voices in this is, is Karl Marx, right? Karl Marx, probably the, the most famous, has to be atheistic philosophers, economists. Here's what Karl Marx says about what you and I believe. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. He is saying with disdain, you know what religion, when he calls that last line especially, that's where it really zeroes in on what he's trying to say. Religion, it's fake. It's not real. In fact, opium just distracts oppressed people. It masks the real pain, right? Opium just give, feeds you a delusion. It doesn't take away. It's fake. It's a mirage. Delusion. You know what I say? Nope. <laughs> My religion forces me to look at pain. It actually speaks directly to my pain. I'm not deluded at all. You're actually deluded. You know what I mean? Who am I? Up against Karl Marx. Yes, I am up against Karl Marx with the truth of the scripture. In, in fact, uh, Dermody sent me uh, this awesome section out of Rebecca McLaughlin, brilliant writer. Listen to this. This is what we say, Christian. This is what we say. She wrote this in Confronting Christianity. Here, here it is. From an atheist perspective, not only is there no hope of a better end to the story, there is no ultimate story, right? Like, okay, just don't keep reading, folks here, just for a second. Atheist, not theist. A theist is somebody who believes in God, that there is a God out there. This, someone who does not believe in God, there is no story. There is no capital S story upon which all other stories are derived. No, right? So 
Not only is there no hope for a better end to the story, there is no story at all. There is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. From a Christian perspective, there's not only hope for a better end, there is intimacy now with the one whose resurrected hands still bear the scars of the nails that pinned him to the cross. Suffering is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith. It is the thread with which Christ's name is stitched into our lives. Right? That's what we believe. That's what we know to be true. Guys, of all the incredible titles given to Jesus Christ, right? Do you know that when we get to the book of Revelation next spring, Lamb, almost 30 times, there's only 22 chapters, almost 30 times he's referred to as the Lamb of God. God doesn't want us to forget about suffering. He doesn't want to give us an opium to, to somehow delude us. He wants us to know that the God of the universe not only acknowledges suffering and pain, but steps right into it and absorbs it into himself. And forever and ever and ever will show you that he really meant it. I'm going to take your pain I'm going to take your death and your pain and suffering and loss right here, right now, is going to end in glory because that's how mine ended up. (laughs) And I'm going to sweep you into a storyline that is going to blow your minds. Even when we finish Revelation, you know, we're going to realize, oh man, I got a glimpse, like the the heavens were open, I I see where this whole thing's going. But what's it going to be like when we step into that story? When we actually, you know, those crazy movies where all of a sudden it's going and you kind of get pulled into the screen, that's, that's going to happen one day. All that we're seeing and reading and our minds are there and all of a sudden we're going to get pulled right into that glorious finale ending and we will forever remember the scars of pain because that's the human experience that we have. Aren't you glad, you guys, that we're reading a book that doesn't pull the punches on that? You guys, I'm looking out into eyes. There's suffering going on all over this room. We're not trying to just put a bandage on it, try to get you distracted from it. No, what we're saying is, oh no, you've come to the right place. Jesus Christ wants to show you purpose and meaning. In fact, he wants to be your gateway into glory and make purpose, make make, make sense of the suffering you're in. It's a real book with a real story offering real life and pointing us to a savior who understands our life and understands our suffering and our death. And he invites you to join him. Man, what a story. All right, will you, will you pray with me? Let's, let's stand together. Let's pray about this. Can't wait to have us sing these songs, guys. <laughs> Lord, I can't believe that we get swept into this story. I can't believe as we we stand here in this this room in Tiffin, Iowa, we actually are exploring things that Moses, Isaiah, even the Apostle Paul would have loved to have understood. 
Wow, that's overwhelming to consider, Lord. What I pray, God, is that we would be drawn not just to the drama of an incredible story, but to the one who makes this story come true. God, I, I, I pray, Lord, would you make Jesus Christ very real to everyone in this room. That his invitation to come and drink, come for healing, come for forgiveness, come for that healing that can only come from that river of life that he offers, Lord. May Jesus be exalted in this place. And Jesus, may you draw every single individual into that good, good news. These things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.